If you have your Bible with you this morning, you're going to want to turn to Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 4. Kind of put your finger in Mark chapter 4. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but just want you to be able to flip over to it. And you also see the verses up on the screen. So in the um, process of last week when we were talking about the 40 days of prayer, I said specifically we'd be looking at a few things during our 40 days together as we're working through this. Let me remind you the three things, first of all, that um, prayer is defined by here at New Hope. First of all, I want you to see on the screen, for prayer here at New Hope, it means that we're seeking His will. It's not about getting our will done in heaven, but about getting God's will done here on earth. So we need to see those on the screen. Um, We've got prayer, seeking His will, and priority. That means putting God first in every single decision, right? God first in everything, and that leads us to our purpose. And our purpose is to seize the opportunities that He brings our way. When God presents new things, so prayer, seeking His will, priority, putting God first in every single decision, and purpose, seizing the opportunities God brings our way. That requires that we pray specifically. As we learned last week, we saw Abraham's servant go 500 miles to Mesopotamia, pray specifically that God would bring about the bride for Isaac because God answers in specifics. He answers in specifics in your life. And that we pray believing God for big things because our God is the God of detail and the God of big things. That really is who He is. He knows exactly what you need. He knows when you need it. And he's concerned with the intimate details of your life, whether you believe it or not. And if you're willing to let him be part of it, he's willing to do that. So there's seven things that we said we were going to pray about as we work through this period of time. Um, The seven things specifically are the facility and the finances and the increasing of our vision and the revival in the community, I mean a, a revival of a heart towards Christ, that we would expect great things towards God, from God, in the midst of this harvest, and that we would personally discover our personal calling, our personal responsibility. You're going to learn about that this morning. And that as we go into the workplace, tomorrow you go back to work, you go to the school, you're in your community, you're in your neighborhood, that we would represent that we would represent who we are and that we would be bold. People of New Hope, that we would be bold in the community about who God is. So facilities, finances, increasing of our vision, revival, expecting great things, discovering our personal calling, and that we would represent. Those are the seven things that we're praying about each week, each day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, I don't know how your three and a half clock in the afternoon prayer went this week for you, and, and systematically, I hope that everybody's hit their knees on Monday at three o'clock and then remembered on Tuesday, but what happened to me might have happened to you come about Thursday. I went into a place of business about um, 2.55 or so on Thursday afternoon and thought to myself, I can get in there and get back out in five minutes with no problem. So my intentions were good, Okay. So indeed, I got in there, did what I needed to do, and came back out three, four minutes later. And of course, you know, I was feeling so good about getting in and getting out, jumped in my vehicle, taken off down the road, and forgot three o'clock, just clicked off. And then came 3.10, and then 3.15, and I looked at my clock, and it said 3.15, and I thought, oh, you idiot, Mark. You're the one leading this thing, and you couldn't remember, okay? Okay, so I'm thinking the same thing could have happened to you this week, all right? So I found a parking lot 
Um, first parking lot I could dive into, and um, I, I start praying and, and realized my choice of parking lot was not the best one. So I went into a public school parking lot. All the parents were picking up their kids from school. They're all coming out, slamming doors. I could not concentrate and focus, so I drove further down the road. Eventually, by 3.40, I get to the place where I can actually pray. If you're new here this morning, if you haven't heard this before, what we're doing is we're asking the entire church for 40 days to pray at 3 in the afternoon about those seven things that I just shared with you so that we see God reveal himself among us. We expect, obviously, everybody's praying throughout the course of the day of their own needs, but at 3 in the afternoon to pray about what God wants to do here at New Hope as we continue to grow as a church and how we're supposed to respond to that because we want his will done on earth, not our will done in heaven. It's all about God's will. Well, where we're going this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9 and John chapter 4, and it's very short teaching this morning um, in in respect to the fact that we had communion, but I want to take you through a couple verses in Matthew chapter 9 and John chapter 4 to give you this 30,000-foot view of God's heart towards us. So as you turn there, maybe you want to watch along up on the screen, um, you'll see this passage from Matthew 9 that is really kind of Jesus' mission statement. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jump over to verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Josephus is a historian who lived in the first century, and he was hired by Rome to not only conduct a census, but to also write down records of how the people of Israel lived at this period of time. And Josephus gives us some insight into the villages and the cities at the time of Jesus. As a matter of fact, he tells us that there were 200 cities and villages in Galilee alone. I'd like you to see his quote up on the screen as he talks about these villages. He says, the cities are numerous and the multitudes of villages are everywhere, crowded with men owing to the fertility of the soil so that the smallest of them contains above 15,000 inhabitants. You don't have to be much of a mathematician to take 15,000 times 200 cities and villages and come up with 3 million people just in Galilee. So Jesus moves through Galilee, and he moves through Judea, and he moves through Samaria. Galilee alone has three million people in it. And we're told, according to verse 35, Jesus going throughout all the cities and all the villages talking about God. Now, there's some really interesting imagery here. We're told specifically in verse 35 that he did it in the synagogues. And that it's a continuing action according to the Greek language. It's not something he did once. He's doing it over and over and over and over again. So here's what you need to know about the synagogues. They're kind of like our church today. When you think of the Jews, typically you might think of the temple in Jerusalem, the one place they would go to. But they only did that a couple times a year. On a weekly basis, they would go to the synagogue, which for them was like a township hall. Now, this township hall was a place where they would go and and get caught up on the news of the community. They could go to the library and read the scrolls that were there of the Old Testament. It's where they conducted their legal business. It's where marriages took place. It's where individuals went to school because the synagogue of that period of time was the public school system. 
So young men and young women, when they went to study God's word, they would go to school and they would go to the synagogue to do it. They would also find that the older men and the older women would show up there in the evenings and just talk about the things of their life and the things of God. So picture it like this. Think of like taking a Starbucks and putting it inside a church and you've got the concept of a synagogue. It's, it's where community life took place. Matter of fact, some of the synagogues were actually built without a roof over the worship area so that when people were in worship, they could look up to heaven. But throughout the other parts of the building, they could go and connect with people undercover. That's the synagogue that Jesus is teaching in. Here's why. Twice a week, the people gathered in the synagogue for what's known as the exposition of the Scriptures. They did what we do. What this, the way that I teach is called expository teaching. It's where you go word by word, verse by verse, and you explain the meaning of the text. Ex, meaning to pull out, expository, the, the content of the text. So Jesus is the master of expository teaching. And he's going from synagogue to synagogue, village to village, city to city, seeing hundreds of thousands of people, and he's teaching them that he's the true interpretation of Scripture. He's the one they should be looking for. Now, with that in mind, let's drill down into verse 36 because we jumped over verse 36, and I want to show you why. Verse 36 says this, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Now, you want to discover the heart of God and His motivation towards you and His real desire towards you and His motivation for coming to earth in the first place? You see it very clearly here. Jesus is looking out over this mass of people that He's seeing day after day after day. And they're every place. They're following Him to the beach. He goes to the mountains. They follow Him to the mountains. He goes to the city, to the houses, they're there. Everybody wants to be around Jesus. And he sees something no one else can see. Did you know that your God has x-ray vision? Jesus has x-ray vision. He has a capacity to see what's inside, not just what's on the outside. And he's moved by some needs most people didn't even know they had because they're living with a hole in their heart, a God-sized hole. And Jesus sees the mass of people who are inwardly devastated by a hopeless condition in their life. He uses two words to describe you and I when he uses distressed and dispirited. If you grab your notes this morning, you'll see him on the right-hand side, those Greek words there, and I'm, I'm going to put them up on the screen as well. First of all, I want you to see this word distress, skulo, because skulo has a very specific meaning to it. It means to flay something. Now, if you've gone fishing in your life or you've been with somebody who's been fishing, maybe your grandpa showed you how to gut a fish or how to fillet a fish, removing the skin from the meat. This word skulo is used that way when they removed the hide from a cow or a sheep or when they cleaned a fish. Skulo meant someone or something that was battered, bruised, mangled, completely ripped apart. And Jesus is looking at people and saying, they're exhausted. They're mangled. They're completely ripped apart. And then he uses this other word, dispirited, which is the word ripto. 
And ripto literally means to be thrown down or like a cart, a wheelbarrow that's just been dumped out and emptied on the ground. So here's the picture. The, the picture is that he sees us completely wiped out as a people who are empty and the result of it is it produces compassion. Now if you've been here at New Hope very long, you've heard me use this word over and over again. It's the word splagnizomahi. A big Greek word, but it's always used in association with Jesus and only of Jesus. And, and this word literally means my gut hurts when the bowels yearn. It means there's an ache, a visceral, physical reaction. So we're not just looking at the mere emotion of pity here. This is a compassion that only God can know. Only God can feel. Why? Because God saw us in our former state. God knew you, daughters of Eve. God knew you, sons of Adam, before the rebellion, before the fall, before death, before destruction. God knew what we looked like in perfection. God knew and understood in a way that no one else could what our life can be in him. And it moves him to compassion because sin has got such a chokehold on people. And that's why he says they're dispirited, they're distressed, they're thrown down. Our God is a God of compassion. I don't know if you've ever thought of him that way before. Our God is the God of compassion. Would you say that with me? One, two, three. Our God is the God of compassion. That's who he is. He says that about himself when he talks to Moses. He says, I'm merciful. I'm long-suffering. I am compassionate. That's how he defines himself. Let me show you a verse that is the antithesis of what God expected man to be. Understand that the shepherds of Israel, those who were the leaders of Israel, were intended to watch over the flock and to guide them, but they failed miserably in their job. And so in Ezekiel, we see God showing up, chapter 34, and speaking through Ezekiel, a condemnation to those who failed to do what God had really expected them to do. Look with me on the screen, Ezekiel 34, 4. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. That's where the origination of the concept comes, sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is quoting playing off from the Old Testament understanding that God's people are just wandering, filleted, broken, thrown down, exhausted, and find, trying to find a way to God. So this is a picture of people completely spent. Jesus is going from village to village, city to city, town to town, seeing hundreds upon thousands of people, and this is what he sees. Now, a little bit of a hard shift for you. It may come as a surprise to you that according to God, people whom you know are ripe for inclusion into God's kingdom to discover new life in God. 
Now, our assumption could be to the contrary. We might look at individuals and say, not that person. They're really not interested in the things of God. I, I know so-and-so. Let's, let's just use a fictitious name. I'll just use the name Jim, okay? Jim, Jim's got a great car. Jim has a great job. You ought to see Jim's house. And Jim's kids, I mean, he's raising them right. They respect him. And, and Jim's life is good. So Jim doesn't really have any needs in his life. Not Jim. God's, not, God, God's looking at the broken down people. He's not really talking about Jim here. See, our assumption can be to the contrary of what God says because according to Scripture, we're told he's the Lord of the harvest. And that means he knows who's ready to be harvested. Here's the danger when we make assumptions. Our assumptions lead us to conclusions. And our conclusions can cause us to easily assume that because someone looks good, they have it all together, they got a great job, they got a great car, they got a great house, their family seems to be together, we can draw the conclusion wrongly that they have no needs in their life. And we can easily miss how broken and how hurting and how lonely some people are. And God, with x-ray vision, sees what's really going on, that they're distressed and the dispirited. See, the very people Jesus saw as he toured the country were the gyms of this world who were lonely and hurting and broken. So as God sees it, this image of wandering sheep is really the truer picture of humanity. So whose view is more accurate, God's or ours? I'm voting God's. I think he really knows. I think he really understands where people are at. And he really knows that our people around us, our friends, our coworkers, our family members, they're ripe for the inclusion into the kingdom. Because Jesus can see something that's infinitely greater than the needs of the broken bodies. There's people coming to him at this point for healing. They want their eyesight back. They want their limbs restored. Those are important. But God sees something infinitely greater. He sees and he's deeply moved by the affliction of the people. Because sin has a stranglehold on people. And it's got them by the throat. And Jesus can see it. And it's choking the life out of them. That's what your God can see. He knows what your friends are really like underneath and how they're hurting. And so in verse 38, he says, Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into the field. Pray earnestly. When you see therefore in the New Testament, you might want to just circle this for yourself or your own Bible. It's always instituting an action. It means, since I said all that, there's an action that's required. Therefore, you've got to do something. There's an action that's required of us. So Jesus singles out one action first above all the others. Do you notice what it is? Pray. Yeah, one action above everything else. Pray. You, you would expect him to command us to some more forceful action. You would think, we've got to call Billy Graham we've got to get out the door flyers. We've got to organize a campaign. God says the most effective action you can take, the very first thing, paramount step, is prayer. 
start there. And do you notice in verse 38, just as an aside, whose harvest it is? It's, it's not New Hope's. It's not Mark's. It's not Gary's. It's not yours. It's his. The Lord of the harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into whose? His harvest. See, it's his. It already belongs to him. Now, let me help you put some flesh on this very quickly. Um, just two verses in John 4. I told you we were going to flip over there real quick. Very, very, very familiar story, so we don't need to spend much time on it. If you were raised in church, you know the story of the woman at the well. Here's the scene. The disciples have gone on lunch break. They take off and they go into the city. Jesus is left at the well all by himself. A woman who is caught up into some really bad relationships decides that she needs to get her water in the middle of the afternoon. Now, most women go out to get water in the evening, as you saw last week with Isaac and Rebecca's story. But because this woman has had five marriages and she's in an adulterous relationship, the women of the city don't want to talk to her. And she doesn't want to be seen by them. So she goes in the middle of the afternoon, finds Jesus at the well, and they begin having a conversation. Uh, here's the background. She sees the disciples coming back out of the city. And she decides to bolt and head back into the city. She's just had this conversation with Jesus. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, I encourage you to read John chapter 4 later today. Now, the disciples are coming back, and they watch this woman hustling down the road. And they're looking at Jesus, and they look at her, and they look at Jesus, and they look at her, and they can't figure it out. What is Jesus doing now? He's talking to a woman? A Samaritan? No kidding. Look at this passage with me on the screen, John 4, 27. This is their reaction. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? See, under the rabbinical custom, men of that period of time didn't talk with women in private settings, especially Samaritan women. And so they're shocked. Now, she makes her way back to the village, and she tells everybody she thinks she's just met God. And she begins, even though she's this woman with this reputation, she's telling everybody in the city, hey, he told me things about myself. He could see me intimately and know things about me that no one else knew. I think you might want to check him out. And so they begin heading out of the city. The city empties, and they go looking for Jesus. Now, in the meantime, the disciples have to have this conversation with Jesus this story and what we looked at at Matthew 9 tells me the very first step that those of us at New Hope need to take in recognizing that we've got to pray for the harvest is to recognize that there is a need in the first place. There's a need for you and I to recognize that there's a need because the disciples are representative of us. They come back to Jesus and they begin talking with him about lunch when Jesus has just had spiritual conversation with a woman who's completely lost and there's a city of people on the other side of the wall who are completely lost, who are ripe for inclusion into the kingdom. So the first step we need to do is recognize there is a need. The second step is we gotta look at the world the way that Jesus looks at the world, that people are broken and dispirited. Now Jesus enters into, here's the last part of the verse, Jesus in verse 35 enters into a conversation with the disciples to kind of bring them back to focus again about why they're really there. Look with me on the screen, verse 35 or in your Bible. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white 
for harvest. Four more months was an ancient way of saying it's a long way off yet, meaning it's like July and the harvest is in October. That's the framework of the disciples. Jesus is saying, no, it's now. The spiritual fields are ready now. It's white for harvest. So at this point, the disciples only had to look up and see the Samaritans coming out of the city dressed in white, making their way towards Jesus. And he says, they're white for harvest. Here is the powerful, powerful contrast I want you to pick up on. The disciples have just been in the city. They're the followers of Jesus Christ. They've walked with him day by day by day, hearing him teach in the cities and in the villages and in the synagogues. They're looking at the same people Jesus has been looking at. They just went to get their tacos inside Samaritan City. They're so interested in their lunch break, they totally miss the people that are there. Now they get their tacos and they run back to Jesus and they're trying to get him to eat. And he's not really interested in eating. He's more interested in what's really going on. The disciples have no idea there's a great harvest about to take place. Now here's the powerful contrast. This woman full of adultery who's been married five times, whose life is totally screwed up, she goes into the city and all she has to say is, I know Jesus and he knows things about me. You might want to go meet him too. And that's what causes the entire city to come out. And look with me at verse 42 now because this is their response after they meet Jesus. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. See, they don't only see Jesus as their personal solution to fix their life. They know He's the Mashiach, the Savior of the entire world. Not just the Samaritans, not just the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. So here's the interesting parallel for me when I look at Matthew 9 and Mark chapter 4. It's very interesting to me that Jesus didn't command the disciples to begin praying that they would get their doctrine down straight or that they would nail it with their worship hymns the next time they got together to worship. He didn't say pray about your services. He said pray that God would send workers into the field. That's the highest bar that Jesus set. Here's why I think many of us shy away from that. When, when we begin praying for the salvation of a neighbor or a friend or a coworker, is it possible that we allow our concern to stop right there? I would say yes because I've done it, so I'll say yes for you too, okay? I, I see by the gleam in your eye, you know what I'm talking about. It's possible to pray for someone to know Jesus Christ but keep them at arm's length and never engage them in conversation. Here's why I think people shy away from praying, God, would you send laborers into the field? Because that opens us up to the possibility that maybe the someone is us, right? And that's a dangerous prayer to pray because we work with Jim and we live next door to Jim. We go to the same car wash as Jim. We go to the grocery store with Jim. And don't tell me I'm the one that's going to talk to Jim too. That's so hard. 
So when you begin praying that God would send laborers into the field, if you're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, you really got to be opening yourself up to the possibility that he's going to be asking you to be that one to talk to Jim. Let me give you a little motivation before you leave today about why. Not just the fact that you get to introduce people to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But here's some motivation according to Scripture. Did you know that heaven is energized when someone comes to God? Really, did you know that? That heaven rejoices? Look with me at the screen. Luke 15, 7 says this. More joy, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This word joy, it's the word kara. It means touchdown. (laughs) Score. That's what the angels do according to Scripture. That's Jesus saying that. He's been there. He knows. Matter of fact, look with me at Luke 15.10. You'll see this on the screen. It says, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. we, we, We applaud our quarterbacks. Yeah. Got that one. We applaud our wide receivers. Can you imagine how the angels cheer when a sinner repents? See, heaven is energized when you lead someone to the kingdom. So where is the Spirit of God nudging you right now? Just self-analysis. Where is the Spirit of God leading you as you ponder this? Here's a few things for you to talk about in the car as you leave today. Maybe you walked here and you just think about it as you walk home. This first one, is your view of God big enough? Is your view of God big enough that He can still reach the one that you think is beyond reach? Is is God still able to lead an entire city to Himself? Just like we saw in John 4. Here's the last one. Am, Am I making the most of every opportunity He brings my way? Why? Because of this, according to Ephesians 5.17, we see this in verse 15. Therefore, be careful, be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, taking advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but be wise, understanding what the will of the Lord is. Let me give you a really simple method for having conversation with people. This is God's method. You never see Jesus in the New Testament any place showing up in a conversation and pointing at someone and saying, Thus saith the Lord, you sinner, repent. That's just not the way he entered into conversation. He shows up at the well and he begins talking with somebody about water. If it's 2013, he walks next door to his neighbor as they're raking their lawn and begins talking about yard work. See, he enters into gentle conversation, which takes them into deeper conversation. He's investing in people's lives. That's the method of God for opening up conversation. Very simple water fountain conversation and taking them to deeper, deeper things. Making the most of every opportunity. I'm going to close with an email. It's a one-paragraph email that I've saved for years for this moment. 
and you remember Hurricane Katrina, you remember 2005, you know what happened in New Orleans at that period of time. There was a director of an agency in Washington, D.C., known as FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Association, or uh, agency, excuse me. That director, located in Washington, D.C., had regional directors around the country. One of the regional directors was in New Orleans. And that regional director, when things were at the peak of devastation, sent a note to Washington, D.C. via email to let Washington know how bad things were. What I have in front of me is just a one paragraph from that email. And this is the regional director speaking to the director of FEMA. It's dated August 31st, 2005, FEMA Regional Director, New Orleans. Sir, I know that you know the situation is past critical. Here are some things you might not know. Hotels are kicking people out. Thousands gathering in the street with no food or water. Hundreds still being rescued from homes. There are dying patients at DMAT tents. Estimates are many will die within hours. Evacuation in process. Plans developing for dome evacuation, but hotel situation is adding to the problem. We are out of food and running water and out of surplus at the dome. Plans in works to address the critical need. DMT staff working in deplorable conditions. The sooner we can get the patients out, the sooner we can evacuate medical teams. Phone connectivity impossible. The director of FEMA in Washington, D.C. responded with a one-line sentence. Thanks for the update. Anything I need to tweak? The guy lost his job. Maybe you remember that. It wasn't only a week later or so he got fired. There's a real danger that as believers, when we hear Matthew 9 and Mark chapter 4, we can leave this morning saying, thanks for the update. Anything I need to tweak? Yes. We need to recognize people out there are broken and they're lonely and they're hurting and they're filleted and they just need to hear about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and what he's done in your life and how you witnessed to it today when you took communion. That's what they need to know because they can know new life in Jesus Christ as well that we would look upon the gyms of this world the way that Jesus looked upon them and that we would have that x-ray vision to say they're broken and they're hurting and I know the way to help them. And as a result, we get to add to the cheering section in heaven. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It's a great, great return on our investment. You talk about re-gifting. God gifted you salvation. You get to re-gift it back. Would you pray with me about that? I know it's very convicting stuff, but I'm, I'm talking about this as much for myself as I am for you. Let's pray that God would give us that eyesight to be able to see the way that he sees. Father, I'm confident that it is your heart that we would be those who would go out into the field and I'm certain there's some here today who are feeling like they don't have the ability 
or they don't have enough knowledge. God, will you dispel that lie? Will you take away that myth? Show us that even an adulterous woman who's been married five times who has no knowledge of anything of your word, even she can talk about Jesus and send people to the right location. God, that you would use us in that way as we go out into the workplace tomorrow, even this afternoon into our neighborhoods, that our heart would beat with your heart. Father, raise our awareness level. We said that we would pray in specifics to you, so I'm asking in specifics, God, that as students get off the bus tomorrow, as they open the doors of their cars, as they walk into the school building, that they will walk into the buildings with the knowledge that they walk in the boldness of the King of Kings and that they can share freely who they are in Jesus. Father, I pray for the men and the women here who take on the work environment tomorrow, that you not only bless their efforts as a child of yours in a work environment, but that you give opportunity for them to speak boldly of who you are. God, would you open the door that we would be able to speak and help us to seize the opportunity when you open the door. Father, I pray for everyone who's part of New Hope Church that what we proclaimed in communion this weekend, what we know to be true, that you died for us, that you forgave us, and that you're coming again one day, that we would be willing to communicate that to a lost and dying world. Help us not to be in the position where we just respond with thanks for the update. Anything we can do, but make us action people. God, I ask this in the name of our soon coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.